0: You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. Join us now for Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith. Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable, Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television, millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is our hope here at Radio Maria that these messages presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my friends, and welcome to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I'm looking forward to sharing with you a little bit more of the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen uh, during this month of May. Last week, we spent a little bit of time reminiscing about Sheen's reflections on Our Lady of Fatima and uh, today we will unpackage uh, a catechism lesson uh, back from the year nineteen sixty five where he will talk about the Blessed Virgin Mary. And uh, I just want to, of course, thank everyone who has supported us uh, for many years now here at Radio Maria Canada, Uh, came on the air in the year 2017, and uh, here we are in 2022, and I'm happy to announce that um, I am now on Radio Maria USA. And uh, the good folks there invited me to uh, host a program, and so uh, it's always nice to kind of say to them that uh, the program originates from Radio Maria Canada and uh, yet, uh, again, is heard all over the world. And uh, there are rumors that um, we will be on Radio Maria Australia in the near future. And uh, even Radio Maria Ireland has shown an interest. So uh, looking forward to uh, growing the family. Uh, but, of course, it emanates here from Canada. And I'm ha- proud to be a Canadian. I'm proud to, of course, uh, never uh, be ashamed to say what my roots are. And uh, born in this beautiful country. And, um, again, I am just so happy that... Uh, Again, this uh, radio outreach of Bishop Sheen uh, is a worldwide outreach, and I think that's the way Bishop Sheen would want it, is that, um, of course, he was the head of the Pontifical Mission Society uh, in the United States for uh, many years, and, of course, traveled the world uh, bringing the love of Christ and sharing the faith, and so I'm sure he's looking down upon us and is quite pleased that we are again, uh, being heard in many countries. All right, today, let's see, uh, we're going to have Bishop Sheen uh, give a reflection called Women as Objects, Not Persons. Now, you may be scratching your head a little bit, but uh, that's what uh, Fulton Sheen did so many times. He gave us these catchy titles to um, pay attention. (laughs) We never knew what he was going to say, but just trust that It is a good message that will point us to Christ and, of course, uh, help us to love our fellow man. So uh, again, he'll be sharing that reflection here in a few moments. And we will then, of course, in the second half of our broadcast, share with you a catechism lesson uh, from Sheen's uh, Sheen Catechism, and it'll be on the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so may I ask you to sit back and relax now and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable. Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen.
1: Friends, that's the applause that refreshes. (laughs) Since this talk is to be on woman, and is she an it, let me tell you the oldest story that has ever been told about women. It goes back to Adam and Eve was after the fall, and Adam was out walking with his two boys, Cain and Abel, and they looked into the wreck and ruin of the once beautiful garden of paradise, and Adam pulled the boys to himself and said, boys, that's where your mother ate us out of house and home. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Stories are generally hard on women for some reason or other. I heard of a man and his wife who were out riding in Sunday traffic. The husband was driving. And the car cut perilously in front of them. Went on ahead, but at the next stoplight, they caught up to it. And on the way, he said to his wife, a stupid woman driver. And she said, that wasn't a woman. That was a man that was driving. He said, I know, but I bet his mother taught him. (laughs) One does not find in in great uh, literature... Oh, a fine portrayal of women. Some of the Russian novelists came close, Tolstoy. In our contemporary literature, women are just female zombies, hardly anything more. And, of course, women note that there's a great decline in respect shown toward them. Men no longer take off their hats and elevators. In New York, there was a man who got up the other day in the subway, really and truly, and gave a seat to a woman, and she fainted. <laughs> Just as she was falling, she said to him, thanks, and he fainted. <laughs> and I, I wonder... I wonder if there's anything in all the world, in all the world, that makes God women into <laughs> more respect, disrespect, than uh, driving a convertible with their hair full of curlers. <laughs> <laughs> One wonders. Well, is it true that they are losing respect and dignity? We will see. But in order to understand it, we must make a distinction. We always have to begin with a distinction because we're supposed to be thinkers and philosophers. One makes a distinction always between a person and a function. person is someone with whom one is in communion and closeness of heart. In function, there's only association, like uh, walking in a factory, because in a factory, you see, for example, in this studio, here we have various machines round about us, and each one of those Heart has a function. And because it has only a function, it is just an it. Nothing more. One deals with a person through anecdote. The Bible is anecdotal. Great Greek writer Homer is anecdotal. Simply because we experience experiences of life when we're dealing however with with it or with individuals there is less that uh, uh, that that communion because an individual is replaceable a person is not for example when you go to a store and order a dozen oranges you say uh, I don't like that orange give me this one Why? Because that's an individual. It's not a person. Nobody can replace your mother, your father, your husband, your wife, your children. But parts and machines can be replaced. They are it. Nothing else but it. And where is this distinction between a person and a function or an it? Better revealed than in the modern world, which is today divorcing love and sex. This is one of the most important divorces of our time. They are not supposed to be separated. Because sex is supposed to be the very highest expression of love. Today, however, we are divorced, And one has somewhat the same relationship as one does. And that explanation between a person and a machine. Sex is replaceable. One and supplies. A person is not. A person is rooted in the heart and if there is sex and relationship with that wife or with that husband, it is because of the strong love that exists between the two. This divorce has become so important that today sex is almost an intellectual thing. It used to be in more barbaric ages, just purely physical, sometimes divorced from love, as in the rape of the sabine. But today, it's intellectual in the sense that it's thought about. It's in the brain, it's not just in the glands. So that uh, when a new model of an automobile is introduced, how is it introduced? Well, you have to have about 18 ballet dancers coming out and dancing on the stage, <laughs> singing about the new model. It's got nothing to do with an automobile, absolutely nothing. And so on the billboard, advertisements for cheese, for coffee, for crackers, for hair color anything, what, what do they have to think about? One thing on their mind, advertisers can't think of anything else. Show a picture of a new model, there's some some girl hanging over the hood. Maybe she goes with the car, but in any case, (laughs) in any case, it's mental. It's possessing the modern mind. And one finds also another evidence of this. In in pin-ups. I suppose, uh, I do not know, I've never seen any statistics, but I'm sure uh, that boys who put pin-up girls in their rooms probably have, uh, 30 or 40 percent of them might have the same girl supplied by a magazine. We are not interested, you see, in a person. So he's in right away for a pin-up. What is it? It's an it. That's all. Is it Mary or Jane or anyone else? No. It's just that. It. So that in George Orwell's famous work, 1984, he speaks of the coming communist society in which... A boy and a girl are conversing with one another and saying, do you love it? It. Functional. That's all. A replaceable part. Then one finds also the same thing. Girls do not have pinups, but they can go in ecstasies about, well, it used to be a uniform. Now... Well, for a time being, uh, tight pants and long hair. Don't let anybody tell you that we do not appreciate long-haired music today. We do. (laughs) And uh, see, what is loved is what? It's the general. It's not the particular. It's not the person. And since... We replace parts and machines, hence the frequency of divorce. Persons are just thrown aside almost with a brush of a hand. Now, what tends to make woman an it? Not that women make themselves it. It's because the civilization of ours has affected this divorce between a person and a function. And when a woman is a functionary or a man is a functionary, they're just it. That's all. Nothing else. Now, what is curious about this is that in an age where we so much stress sex, one finds that later on when one makes an investigation about it, it doesn't play a very important role. For example, uh, there was a survey made by a university in this country of two groups of women. Uh, One married women in the 30-age group, that is to say the early 30s, and another in those who were about 49. You see, they never reached 50. They were just 49. (laughs) And one of the questions that was asked was, what do you as a woman judge most important in your home? And the answer was the home, things. Some women said children, which is right, because a man marries to have a woman, but a woman marries to have children. But what was interesting was that they were the queen of things, things. Why advertisers have to stress detergent so you can take a dirty sock and put it inside of 20 gunny sacks and leave it in there for two seconds and look white, right immaculate. What a great, big, white, wonderful world we live in. And so they become interested in things. It was the home. See, it was not the husband. That's curious. Not the husband. Very few said that. When it was a person, it was children. But generally, things in the home. And then they were asked this question. What is the most important rule uh, role of the husband? The answer was a provider. Provider. See how he became an it, too? And many of the women, when asked about the job, said they didn't know exactly what he was doing, but he was a good provider. It made, uh, made me think of, uh, of a, something that I was reading in the work of a, of a great European psychiatrist. He was saying, I was, I was the economist, I was the psychiatrist, I was the doctor, I was the provider... For my wife, and one night she said to me, that when I was discussing a problem with her, then you really need me, don't you? And he said, Then it came to me what marriage really was that she was a person and I was a person. And so, with this overemphasis on the carnal, on the fragmented civilization in which we live, in which there's fission without any fusion. Where there's been this emphasis on the Eros. Women are becoming it. And even husbands are becoming it. So one can trace the stages of the decline. The decline of love. That's what it is. In the first stage. I can tell him anything. Always understand. Second stage. I can't understand why you did that. The third and last stage. Don't tell him. He wouldn't understand. <laughs> it's the person that understands and so it's become a life of gifts. Now, what is the answer to this? I've only given you is really the cause, and indicated a few symptoms of what is happening, namely the degeneration of a person is one made in the image and likeness of God. The answer to it is this. Here I'm only talking about women. It could just as well be about husbands. But the answer, as far as women is concerned, is this. Every woman was meant to be a mother. Either physically or spiritually. First of all, Physical motherhood is easy to understand. Physical motherhood is the incarnation of a mutual love. All love ends in an incarnation. And this kind of motherhood, too, is one in which love never grows pale because there's always a new a new veil that is lifted to side. First of all is that of a wife and then that of a mother and and an educator, a mother, craft, and so forth. When uh, uh, when they first meet, the young man and young woman, well, she is attracted by his power. Oh, you should see the end run he made Saturday afternoon. Power. And then she, oh, she's the most beautiful girl in the world, and, and, and she uses cute baby talk. Then after a while, after a short time in marriage, then she asked him to put up the screens. and All the power is gone. What do you think I am, a Tarzan? (laughs) And then finally the baby talk gets on his nerves. But then there's love, real love, and all the power begins to appear in the boy and all the beauty begins to appear in the girl. He begins to revive. And the youngsters, and she begins to revive in all of her beauty and cute baby talk in the little ones. And that their love becomes a pilgrimage. It's a love of persons, one for the other, husband and wife, finding its carnal expression here and there, but always irreplaceable. Because the first love that is the last love and then eternal love. Then there is spiritual motherhood. We must not think that there is any great priority of going to God through a husband and going to God through humanity. Spiritual motherhood is one in which there is no marriage, but there is a spending of the powers that might be utilized in a smaller group in a much larger group. No woman see a limping dog or could see a rose overhanging a vase without her heart, mind, and soul going out to these things as if to prove that she was appointed by God as the custodian and the guardian of life. And in this she becomes a person. professional life harden a woman? No, there's nothing in professional life that would harden a woman. What would harden a woman in professional life? An inability to find an outlet for her specifically creative function. The helping of humanity like women on in missionaries as missionaries. There was one nun in a leper colony and Some wealthy man on a tour passed on the outside of the leper colony, and the sister came out to see him, and he said, Sister, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. And she said, Neither would I. But she did it simply because she loved humanity. Loved the poor. Hence, the women who do not utilize this great function that God has given them, this motherly spirit, then they become withered and dried up. Some years ago, I was traveling on a plane between New York and Chicago, and the stewardess sat down alongside of me just as soon as we took off, and she said, do you remember me? No. Are you sure you don't remember me? I said, I ought to, because she was a very beautiful girl. I said, I ought to, but I don't. She said, you don't remember talking to me? I said, no. Well, she said, two years ago on this plane, I sat with you for 20 minutes. And I remember every word you said to me. What did I say? Well, you began by saying, you are a very beautiful girl. You see, celibacy doesn't blind us. (laughs) As a matter of fact, it may give us better eyesight. I don't know. But in any case, you began by saying you're a very beautiful girl, and then you added, did you know, and of all the gifts that God gives, the one that he gives back last and least of all, is the gift of beauty. He gives men money. They use it to help the poor of the world. He gives men the gift of song, and they sing for him. But when he gives... Gives the gift of beauty generally. He gets back nothing. but whole bone. Now that you have the gift of beauty, why don't you think of using it for people who never see anything beautiful? That's what you said. Well, I said, that sounds exactly like me, and that's what I would say. <laughs> she said, I've had two years to think it over. Now I'm ready to do anything. Said, anything else, she said. Anything. She said, all right, you come to my office in two days in New York, and I will tell you I said, I will tell you now if you want to know. She said, it makes no difference. Because I've made up my mind. I said, you're going to the Vietnam to care for lepers. That's where she is. Caring for lepers. And these poor people, whose own loving loveliness has been ruined now are looking out on something beautiful. And so a woman through motherhood and through a true marriage and a woman through the service of humanity becomes not the modern woman. Once our superior, now our equal. The real, godlike woman whom we toast. First, at the tomb on Easter morn and closest to the cross, on
0: Good Friday. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, my friends, and thank you for coming back to listen to the second half of our broadcast today. And uh, Fulton Sheen will be giving us a catechism lesson on the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, I want to thank everyone who has been generous to us over the years. It is through your prayerful and financial contributions to Radio Maria Canada that we've stayed on the air for so long. And uh, we pray to be there for you as a a Catholic voice in your home. And uh, so we ask you again to continue to keep us in your prayers. And of course, um, please uh, give us what you can. And, uh, you know, I'm just a humble baker. I'm one of these volunteers that just know in my heart of hearts that this is the right thing to do. And I'm so uh, privileged to be able to share the wit and wisdom of Archbishop Sheen with you every week. And so uh, may I invite you once again, as we uh, take a little bit of time to learn our faith together, And uh, again, the trusted voice of Archbishop Sheen and how uh, he brought hundreds of thousands of souls uh, to the church, including my father, who, uh, you know, said to me um, it was listening to Fulton Sheen on the radio in the 1940s and, of course, watching him on television in the 1950s that um, he had his attention. Uh, My dad was a Mormon. And, of course, was interested in becoming a Mormon um, a preacher, an elder in the church, and uh, wanted to spend his time in ministry. And uh, so as he journeyed and studied, um, he had many questions about the Catholic faith, and questions especially about Scripture. And uh, time and time again, he would find that his elders couldn't answer all the questions, Uh, yet he would listen to Fulton Sheen on the radio, and uh, he would have those answers, as the church does have the answers on the sacred scriptures and, uh, again, has timely advice. And so, uh, again, it took a few years, but uh, my dad was not afraid to become a Catholic. In the 50s, and so in 1957, uh, he joined the church and uh, became Catholic and again attributes Archbishop Sheen's uh, wisdom uh, in his journey. And so, uh, again, I am indebted to uh, this very wise and holy man for helping my father uh, come to see the light of the faith. And again, as I travel across Canada and uh, throughout the United States, I hear story after story of people who uh, came to the faith through the hands of the Venerable Sheen. And so, uh, let me now put you into these trusted hands as Archbishop Sheen gives a reflection on the Blessed Virgin Mary. Please enjoy.
2: Friends, peace be to you. At this point in the unfolding of the Divine Mysteries and Christian Doctrine, we come to some very important words in the creed Namely, that our blessed Lord was born of the Virgin Mary. We will try to give, first of all, some evidence for this. Secondly, show how it was necessary in the present plan of the world's redemption. First of all, the evidence for it, that our Lord was born of the Virgin Mary. In order to understand proofs, we must realize that the Gospels were not first. There were tradition. Every member in the early church, that is to say, after Pentecost and until the Gospels were written, every member of the church already knew about the miracle of the loaves and fishes, about the resurrection, and about the virgin birth. It's something like, for example, the knowledge that we have that World War I began in 1914. We read that in the book. The fact that we read it in the book does not create the belief in us, does it? It merely confirms what we already know. So, too, the gospel set down in a more systematic way that which was already believed. Just suppose that you live during the first 25 years of the church after Pentecost. How would you have answered the question? How can I know what I am to believe? You could not say, I will look in the Bible. There was no New Testament Bible then you would have to believe what the church was teaching in those days. Never once, for example, did our Lord tell the witnesses of his life to write. He wrote only once in his life, and that was in the sands. But he did tell his apostles to preach in his name. Be witnesses to him until the ends of the earth. Hence those that take this or that text out of the gospel to prove something are very often isolating it from the historical atmosphere in which it arose and from the word of mouth which passed on Christ's truth. When finally the Gospels were written, they recorded a tradition. They did not create it. It was already there. After a while, men had decided to put in writing this tradition. And that explains the beginning of the gospel of St. Luke. You remember how he begins? That thou mayest know the verity of these words in which thou hast been instructed. See, he assumes that people already had been instructed. The gospels did not start the church. The church started the gospels. The church did not come out of the Gospels. It was the Gospels that came out of the church. The church preceded the New Testament. Not the New Testament, the church. Men did not believe in the resurrection because the gospel said there was a resurrection. The gospel writers wrote down the story of the crucifixion, for example, and the resurrection because they believed it. Now, in like manner, the church did not come to believe in the virgin birth because the gospels tell us there is a virgin birth. It was because the living word of God in his mystical body, the church already believed it. And they set it down in the gospels. if the apostles who lived with our Lord, who heard him speak in the open hills and in the temple, if the apostles did not teach the virgin birth, no one else would have taught it. No one else would have written it. It was too unusual an idea for men to make up. It would have been ordinarily too difficult for acceptance if it had not come from Christ himself. Now the one man who might be inclined to doubt the virgin birth on natural grounds was the man who writes it in his gospel, namely St. Luke. I say on natural grounds because Luke was a physician. And yet it's the medical doctor who sets down the virgin birth and tells us most about it. Many of the teachings of our Lord were denied by heretics because there was a protest against Christ in the church from the very beginning. Now these heretics denied some of his doctrines, but there was one teaching that no early heretic denied. And that is that our Lord was born of a virgin. One would think that would be the very first doctrine to be attacked. But the virgin birth was accepted both by heretics and by believers alike. It would have been rather silly to try to convince anyone of the virgin birth. If he did not already believe in the divinity of Christ. That is why probably. Mary did not speak of it herself until after the resurrection. And she told the apostles and others although certainly Joseph, Elizabeth, and probably John the Baptist already knew of it. and Of course, our Lord himself all the time. We need not say that. Now we come to an objection that is often urged. Does not the gospel say that our blessed Lord had brothers? If he had brothers... And Mary had other children. If Mary had other children. Then. She was not always the virgin. Now we will try to. Give some answer to that. I stand in the pulpit. Very often. And I begin my sermon by saying. My dear brethren. Does that mean that everyone in the congregation and I had exactly the same mother? Or is it just a form of speech? Now, that wide use of the word brethren that we have in our modern language was used also in a very wide sense by scriptures. In the scriptures, the word brother means a relative, sometimes a friend. Let us take, for example, Abraham and Lot. Abraham calls Lot his brother. As we read in the book of Genesis. Pray, let us have no strife between us two, between my shepherds and thine. For we are brethren. Now, Lot was not a brother of Abraham. He was a nephew. But that's the way the scripture speaks of friends and relatives. Thirdly, there are several, indeed, who are mentioned as brothers of Christ, such as James. But they are indicated elsewhere as the sons of another Mary. I mean elsewhere in Scripture, namely Mary, the sister of the mother of our Lord, and the wife of Cleophas. And again, James, who was particularly mentioned as the brother of our Lord, as, for example, by St. Paul, who said, But I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. But this James is regularly named in the enumeration of the apostles as the son of another father, namely Alphaeus. And you'll find that recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Furthermore, the so-called brethren of our Lord are nowhere mentioned in the scripture as the sons and the daughters of Joseph and Mary. Nowhere in scripture is it said that Joseph had begotten brothers and sisters of Jesus, as nowhere does it say that Mary had other children besides her divine son. Now we come to some rather unusual proofs of the virgin birth from sacred scripture. I say unusual because I mean apart from the very obvious references that there are in St. Luke. Two of these proofs we're going to draw from the Gospel of St. John and also from the writings of St. Paul. First of all, St. John. St. John assumes the virgin birth. We say this because throughout the Gospel of St. John, there is the assumption of a double birth. We are, first of all, born of our parents. And then we are born of God. The waters of the Holy Spirit in baptism. Remember, that is what our Lord meant when he told Nicodemus that he must be born again. First birth he took from his mother and the flesh and the second is the birth of the Spirit. Now, what makes us Christians is not being born of our parents, but being born of God through baptism. Now, notice when St. John speaks of this second birth, namely our birth of God. He practically assumes the virgin birth because he said in the beginning of his gospel that our Lord gave to us, quote, the power to become the sons of God. And he tells us that this happens by a birth. But he immediately says this is not a human birth. And then he goes on to enumerate the reasons why it's not a human birth. He said, it is neither of blood nor of sex. Nor of the human will. But solely by the power of God. Now this statement of John certainly assumed. A Christian and common understanding of the virgin birth. What is blood? What is sex? What is the human will? The human birth. All of these elements are eliminated in the story of the birth of our Lord. The Blessed Mother says that she is a virgin, that she knows not man. God says that the power of God will overshadow her. You get the same elements you see in the Gospel of St. John that you get in the Gospel of St. Luke. How could any Christian in those days have understood this spiritual kind of a birth unless they understood the virgin birth? Therefore, it already happened. No one who at the end of the first century read the beginning of the gospel of St. John was amazed that St. John should have spoken of a new generation without sex. They were not amazed because at this time the whole Christian world knew that this is how Christianity came into being. The virgin birth, in other words, is God's idea, not man's. No one would ever have thought of it if it had not happened. Now we come to another proof from the gospel of St. Paul. Not the gospel, rather the epistles of St. Paul. St. Paul also assumes the virgin birth. Now, as you know, the epistles were originally written in Greek. When St. Paul speaks of the birth of our Lord, he uses in Greek a very peculiar expression. Let us take, for example, St. Paul's message to the Galatians. Quote, Then God sent out his son on a mission to us. He took birth. Notice that. He took birth from a woman. Took birth as a subject of the law. To make us sons by adoption. Whenever St. Paul describes the birth of our Lord, he never uses the ordinary word. To describe birth. In other words. He never uses the word. To describe a human birth. Which is. The result of a conjunction. Of man and woman. The word that is always used. In every other New Testament passage. Now the common word. In Greek. Is some form. Of the Greek word. Genao. G-E-N-N-A-O that means a birth such as you had and I had. But St. Paul, in four instances, speaks of the temporal beginnings of our Lord. Remember, the person of our Lord was eternal. It was only his human nature that had a beginning. Now, in the four instances where St. Paul touches on, the temporal beginnings of our Lord, as a man, in those four instances, St. Paul uses an entirely different Greek word because it was not the ordinary kind of birth. He used some form of the word ginomai, G-I-N-O-M-A-I. Never once does he employ that other word which means common ordinary birth such as all mortals have. He never uses that to describe the birth of our Lord. He uses always a word which means like to come into existence or to become. One very interesting proof of this is in a passage in the Galatians, chapter 4, verses 23, 24, and 29. In that epistle, St. Paul uses the word to be born, that is to say in the ordinary way, three times. He uses it to describe the birth of Ishmael and the birth of Jacob. But when he comes to the birth of our Lord, he refuses to use that word. He uses another word. A form of the verb kinomai, because the birth of our Lord was a virgin birth. You will find in the New Testament thirty-three times some description of the birth of a child, and in every single instance the New Testament uses the word genau, the ordinary birth like yours and mine. But that word is never used once concerning the birth of our Lord. Our Lord as a person had an eternal birth. Inasmuch as he assumed human nature, he had a temporal birth, a beginning. Yes, the beginning came from the virgin. See, the reason of the difference is this. Our Lord was born into the human family, into the human race. He was not born of it. God formed Adam, the first man, without the seed of a man. So why should we shrink from the thought that the new Adam would also be formed without the seed of a man? As Adam was made of the earth into which God breathed a living soul, So the body of Christ was formed in the flesh of Mary by the Holy Spirit. And so firmly rooted was the virgin birth in Christian tradition that none of the early apologists ever had to defend the virgin birth. It was believed in even by heretics, as we said, just as much as the crucifixion was, because it stood on exactly the same footing as an historical fact. Here's another interesting point. There are two birth stories in the gospel. The birth of our Lord and the birth of John the Baptist. But notice the different stress. The gospel story of John the Baptist centers on the father, Zachary. The gospel story of the birth of Jesus centers on the mother. Why does it center on the mother? Again, because of the virgin birth. Now you may ask, well, why is there a virgin birth? Could our blessed Lord have come to this earth in any other way? Most certainly. Our Lord really need not have been born at all. But given the present order of things, why is there a virgin birth? Well, Now here we come to something that is a little difficult to understand and we hope that we can, that we can make it clear. The reason we believe in a virgin birth, and the reason in the present order our Lord chose that way was first of all, he wanted someone very good to bring him into this world. No great triumphant leader makes his entrance into the city over dust covered roads when he could come on a flower strewn avenue. Had infinite purity chosen any other port of entrance into humanity but that of human purity? it would have created a tremendous difficulty for us. Namely, how could he be sinless if he was born of a sin-laden humanity? If a brush dipped in black becomes black, and if a cloth takes on the color of the dye, would not he in the eyes of the world have partaken of the guilt in which all humanity shared? If he came to this earth through the wheat field of moral weakness... He certainly would have some chaff hanging onto the garment of his human nature. In other words, our problem is this. How could God become man and yet be a sinless man? First of all, he had to be man. He had to be like us. In order that he might be involved in some way in our humanity, in order that he might take upon himself our sins. But at the same time, though our blessed Lord had to be a perfect man, nevertheless he could not be a sinful man. He had to be a sinless man. He had in some way to be outside of that terrible current of sin that has passed on and infected all humanity. You see the problem? He had to be a man. He had to be different from all other men in the sense that he had to be our redeemer, and sinless in the new Adam. The problem is very much like that of a ship. Imagine a ship sailing on a sea that's very dirty and foul. It wishes to pass to another sea or lake immediately nearby where the waters are crystal clear and pure. Now, evidently, there has to be some break between the foul waters and the clear waters. Otherwise, they would merge. So what happens? There is often a lock built. So a ship sails along those foul waters, then comes into the lock where the foul waters are completely separated from it. And then the ship is finally lifted into the clear waters. So our blessed Lord in some way had to be related to the sinful humanity that went on before, related in as much as he would be a man, because he would be sinful. And at the same time, he had to be sinless
0: so that he himself
2: would not need redemption. but would be our redeemer. Now that lock that lifted our blessed Lord out of that sinful current of humanity and made him the sinless man, the new head of the human race, was the. And then think of the beautiful, beautiful application it has for all of us. The Blessed Mother is the inspiration of everyone. The Mother is the protectress of the Virgin and the Virgin is the inspiration of motherhood. Without mothers, there would be no virgins in the next generation. Without the virgins, mothers would forget that sublime ideal lives beyond the earth. How often, for example, when you visit someone, you hear it, said, oh, that child looks exactly like the father. Well, if we had looked at our blessed Lord, we would have said, he looks exactly like his mother. He got something from his father's side, namely divinity. But he also got something from his mother's side, namely, a sinless humanity. That's why we love Mary. Hey,
0: Mary. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, our hour has come to an end and I hope you enjoyed these reflections from Archbishop Sheen. And if you'd like to hear more of Archbishop Sheen, please visit my website, bishopsheentoday.com. And there you'll find hundreds of hours of videos and audio recordings, along with a number of books. And so it's an easy website to remember, simply bishopsheentoday.com. So please give us a visit. And so until next time, may the Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you, and we'll see you next week.